Welcome to the Backyard Professor Philosophy videos. Philosophy and nature, the world, the cosmos, our place in it. These topics greatly interest me. So I'm going to share with you some beautiful video of where I went hiking today, this morning, first thing. And I contemplated our place in the universe. And I'm going to choose for my discussion of the philosophical implications of this, the excellent text of David Feidler, Restoring the Soul of the World, Our Living Bond with Nature's Intelligence. I begin on page 56. In the beginning was the Logos. Just as our body is composed of many molecules and members which are held together by one soul, so I think that the universe ought to be thought of as an immense complex organism held together by the power and the reason, which is Logos, of God as by a single soul. That was Oregon of Alexandria. The Logos is God's likeness by whom the whole cosmos was fashioned. That's Philo of Alexandria. This very much reminds us of the Jewish Kabbalistic Adam Kadmon, the universal man of the cosmos. The central idea of Alexandrian spiritual thought was the Logos, a notion that united religious, philosophical, and cosmological ideas. Logos has many meanings, including reason, ratio, intelligent pattern, order, and an account, or that which is spoken. Unfortunately, Logos is usually translated into English as word, which is highly misleading because it so greatly diminishes the full meaning of the Greek term. When the prologue to the Gospel of John starts off with the lines, In the beginning was the word, an arca, Ain Hilogos is the Greek, and the word was with God, Ain Prostrontheo. The Greek term Logos appears in the original. Well, used in this context, Logos refers to the rational order of the cosmic pattern. We live in an ordered universe, a cosmos in which the parts are harmonized within the whole through ratio and pattern and proportion. This organic pattern that lies at the heart of the nature is the Logos. As Plato said, the cosmos itself is harmonized by Logos, or proportion, but Logos also means reason. So not only is there a cosmic pattern, but it is rational. The reason, or the ratio, that is present in us, in our souls, and our intellects, is part of the same Logos that underlies the cosmic pattern. In short, our own minds embody the reason and intelligence of the universe. And the Hellenistic idea of the Logos is just essentially another name for what Plato called the world soul. According to the ancient philosophers, the Logos is the, the divine, rational power that orders and enlivens the resplendent universe. Ever since the birth of humanity, and long before the beginnings of written history, thoughtful people have noticed an order of nature reflected in the changing seasons, the course of the sun, the wheeling stars, 
the growth patterns of plants and animals, the ratios of music, and this list can go on. For the Greeks, all of these things reflected the nature of Logos, the living pattern behind the cosmic order. It was only natural in a poetic sense that this cosmic order would be personified as divinities or divine powers. For example, the ancient Egyptian god Thoth. He was the lord of celestial mechanics and mathematics, who spoke the primordial words that ordained the course of the planets. It was a personification of the Logos. So too was his Greek counterpart, Hermes, the messenger of Zeus, who is said to be, be the inventor of the alphabet and writing. Now Apollo, the Greek god of music and harmony and the mediation between extremes, he too symbolized the Logos. And in the hymn to Zeus by the Stoic philosopher Cleanthes, Zeus himself is identified as the Logos, the world soul, the intelligence behind the universe. Thus, when the early Christian writers identified Jesus himself as the Logos, they were following in an ancient tradition that was culturally and philosophically sanctioned. Christ as Logos was not seen as merely a human person, but as the cosmic power that shapes the universe and is revealed in its rationality. In the beginning was the Word, human consciousness. The light of life is a manifestation of the same living power that animates the sun and the shining stars. Clement of Alexandria was just one early writer who personified Christ in cosmic terms as the spiritual sun, S-U-N, noting that when the Logos, the S-U-N of the soul, the sun of the soul, rises in the depth of the mind, the soul's eye is illuminated. Nothing which is devoid of life and intelligence can give birth to any living creature which has intelligence. But the universe does give birth to living creatures which partake of intelligence in their degree. The universe is therefore itself a living intelligence. That was Zeno of Citium. When the early Christians referred to the Logos, it was an idea they had assimilated from the Greeks. Plato had spoken of the rationality of the cosmos. He even referred to the mind and the soul of the universe. But it was the Stoics who developed these ideas in an even grander way. After Plato's Academy and Aristotle's Lyceum, the Epicureans and the Stoics were the two great philosophical schools to emerge in Athens. With the Epicureans and Stoics, we've already entered the threshold of the Hellenistic Age. For them, philosophy most clearly became what in ordinary language it still is, a way of coping with the world at war. Yet despite their emphasis on philosophy as a means for achieving peace of mind in an unpredictable world, both of the Epicureans and their counterparts, the Stoics, appealed to scientific ideas in support of their opposing viewpoints. Epicurus established a philosophical school in Athens around 307 BC at his private home and garden, which he bestowed to his students after his death. It was known as the garden. 
The Epicurean community was a circle of friends who shared their lives and meals in common. Epicurus was a materialist insofar as he adapted the atomism of the earlier philosopher Democritus. According to Democritus, the world is made out of tiny, solid particles of matter that adhere together. The smallest discrete bits of matter are atomic, or they're indivisible, the source of our word atom. Only atoms in the void in which they move are real. But since the ever-moving atoms are infinite, what can possibly come into being actually does, however rare it might be. Everything that happens in the universe does so for a cause. But for the atomist, there is no purpose or design to the universe. The materialism of the Epicureans was used as a means of refuting popular superstitions regarding the afterlife. If someone coined a motto to sum up the thought of the Epicureans, it might read, Science removes the fear of the gods. One of the greatest fears of humankind is everlasting punishment in an afterlife. But Epicurus pointed out that the soul, like everything else, is ultimately material, merely formed out of an especially fine substance. At death, the atoms of the soul are released back into the universe, and the soul as such ceases to exist. There's no reason to fear the pain of death, because when the soul dissolves, there's nothing left to experience the pain, let alone anything to suffer eternal torment. So, in essence, when we die, we won't even know that we're dead. For Epicurus, the pathways to happiness involve cultivating a life of simple pleasure among friends. Pleasure involves a, a freedom from physical pain and mental agitation. The philosopher should live simply, free of empty fears and vain ambitions. In order to attain a quiet mind, it's necessary to withdraw from the active responsibilities of the world and to live unnoticed. Ironically, despite his rejection of the religious ideas regarding the afterlife, Epicurus did accept the existence of the gods. He reasoned that because the universe is infinite, there is room for infinite possibilities to become real. What can physically come into being actually does so. He believed that the bodies of the gods are composed of the finest matter, and they live forever in a state of perfect tranquility because they alone possess the power and the knowledge to guard themselves against all disturbances. In this sense, the gods are models of what the philosopher's life should become. While the Epicureans developed a wide following, most Greek philosophers viewed the ideas of atomism as woefully incomplete. For if everything is made out of tiny particles of matter, what is it that causes the atoms to fit together to form complex organisms? In a universe of randomly colliding billiard balls, what is the glue that holds everything together in such a stunningly coherent and beautiful way? What causes the order of nature to arise? For most philosophers, the answer was soul, which bestows form on living things. Over a period of several weeks, every single molecule of our physical body is replaced by other molecules. Every several weeks we are made of different stuff, but the actual form of the organism remains largely unchanged. 
From this perspective, the most important aspect of anything is the form that makes an organism cohere. And it was this aspect that the atomistic theories fell short of addressing. As philosopher Stephen Toulmin writes, wherever men looked, they saw bodies preserving a structure and form more organized or permanent than Greek atomism could easily explain. Well, contrary to the Epicureans and the atomists, stood the Stoics. Founded by Zeno in 301 BC, the school held its discussions near the Painted Porch, or the Stoa, in Athens. It was a local landmark that gave the school its name. Like the Epicureans, the Stoics sought to discover a pathway to an untroubled life of self-sufficiency. But beyond that similar desire, no two perspectives could be further apart. Zeno believed that Plato and Aristotle had been dualistic in outlook, pitting spirit against matter. For Zeno, the world was made out of only one thing, and there's no difference ultimately between mind and matter. They are only different aspects of the same phenomenon. We can speak of mind and matter as a figure of speech, but since the universe is one, mind and matter are ultimately the same. For Zeno, God was mind, matter, and the entire universe simultaneously. God is not something outside of nature, but a vital force and intelligence that permeates the living universe. For the Stoics, the entire universe was a living organism, synonymous with God and permeated by a vital animating spirit. This spirit, or pneuma, like everything else, is material, but at the same time intelligent and dynamic. While the Epicureans said that everything was composed of tiny discrete atoms, for the Stoics, the emphasis was on continuity. The world is not an empty void in which atoms collide mindlessly, but a plenum, a living ocean saturated by spirit and intelligence. Zeno rejected atomism because the universe is finally ordered. Atomism, too, left much to chance. For Zeno, the world is too divinely ordered. But like every other Greek philosopher, he did not suggest the existence of an external creator god that brought the universe into being like an engineer, say, who draws up a plan. Instead, Zeno's universe arose from a divine ordering principle that was synonymous with the universe itself, and this existed at the heart of creation. This principle he called the Logos which might best be translated as intelligence. Without an understanding of the nature of the universe, a man cannot know where he is. Without an understanding of its purpose, he cannot know what he is, nor what the universe itself is. Let either of these discoveries be hid from him, and he will not be able so much as to give a reason for his own existence. Marcus Aurelius For the Stoics, cosmology and ethics were tightly interwoven. As the Roman emperor and Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius pointed out, 
Without knowledge of the nature and the purpose of the universe, we cannot know ourselves. Yet without knowledge of our own nature, we cannot understand the universe. Philosophy, like science, is an unfolding spiral of discovery in which the part comes to more deeply understand its relationship with the living whole. While the Epicureans based their ethics on pleasure and the avoidance of pain, the Stoics based their ethics on reason. Logos, the luminous rationality of the world structure, is also present in humanity. Human rationality embodies the intelligence of the cosmos. And the Stoics taught that this faculty must be actualized and cultivated in order for one to become fully human. To achieve happiness, we must follow nature and live in harmony with the world. But to follow nature, each being must realize its own true nature and fulfill its inner potential. In the case of humans, this means cultivating the rational spark within, which binds us with the deepest heart of the cosmic pattern. For Plato and the Pythagoreans, all things are connected through the proportional relationships of the world's soul. The entire cosmos is a coherent pattern in which humanity is profoundly interwoven. For Plato, the harmonies of nature provided a standard on which to base the good order of society. Through proportion, humanity is linked with every part of creation, for one community embraces heaven and earth. Disease and disorder appear when nature's equilibrium is disrupted, both in the individual soul and in the larger society. Plato said that it is the philosopher's job to first study the harmonious patterns of the cosmos as a guide, and to then therapeutically cultivate such relationships in human society or the polis. Well, the Stoics took this idea further, and they spoke of the cosmopolis, or the world community, literally the community of the cosmos, or the entire universe. Because of the spark of cosmic reason that dwells in human beings, all persons are equal and united in a universal brotherhood of humanity, men, women, and the people of every race. As Seneca wrote, Life must proceed on the conviction that I am not born for any one corner of the universe. This whole world is my country. For the Stoics at the dawn of the Hellenistic Age, humans were no longer seen as being restricted to the boundaries of their local village or tribe. As in our time, individuals became not only global citizens, but citizens of the larger universe. In the cosmopolis, there is a moral community of rational beings, implying collaboration with others and society. Our own inner nature demands that we fulfill our potential and become vitally involved in the world community of which we are a part. Well, in this way, individual fulfillment, fulfillment of the human race, and the fulfillment of the entire cosmic process all of these are intertwined. 
Uh, Seneca wrote in another passage, philosophy's first promise is a sense of participation, of belonging to mankind, being a member of society. But this entire matrix of human community is more than just a human invention. It is rooted in the deep order, harmony, and relatedness of the cosmic pattern. Thus, while the Epicureans claimed that happiness could be only attained by a selfish withdrawal from public life, the Stoics maintained that true human flourishing depends on an involvement in the world community. Always think of the universe as one living organism with a single substance and a single soul, and observe how all things are submitted to the single perceptivity of this one whole. All are moved by its single impulse, and all play their part in the causation of every event that happens. Remark the intricacy of Skine, Skein, the complexity of the web. Marcus Aurelius. For Plato, the world's soul was the pattern of relatedness that allows the cosmos to unfold. But for the Stoics, it was an even more tangible reality, the fiery rational breath that permeates the stars, the sun, and all living beings. The universe is one event manifesting itself in a variety of ways. It is permeated by an active intelligence that has many names, Logos, Mind, Nature, God, Providence, Zeus, Destiny, the world's soul. Mind is not something exclusive to humans, but our individual minds emerge from the larger rationality and intelligence of the greater whole to which we belong. As Marcus Aurelius wrote in a passage reminiscent of modern ecological thought, all things are interwoven with one another. A sacred bond unites them. There is scarcely one thing that is isolated from one another. Everything is coordinated. Everything works together in giving form to the one universe. Because we are war woven in the warp and the woof of the cosmic tapestry, each person is implicated in ever-widening circles and ever-larger holes. An individual is rooted in human community. Human community is rooted in the greater community of the biosphere. The biosphere is rooted in the living dynamics of the solar system. And the solar system is rooted in the great community of the Milky Way galaxy. For the Stoics, the mind of the universe is social. And the world is that supreme city in which all other cities are as households. The chief good of a rational being is fellowship with his neighbors. And as a part of the world order, we help to create the social whole. Therefore, our actions should support the social life. But as Marcus Aurelius pointed out, we're not merely parts of the whole, but limbs of the universe. If we think of ourselves only as parts, we act only out of bare duty and not out of love from the heart of mankind because of its emphasis on the universal fellowship of humanity. Stoicism not only inspired Roman statesmen like Marcus Aurelius 
but it provided the foundation for the early Christian idea of the brotherhood of man. By the power of the soul, the manifold and diverse heavenly system is a unit. Through soul, this universe is a god because it is in soul. So to the stars, and whatsoever we ourselves may be, it is all in virtue of soul, according to Plotinus. Alexandria, the earthly cosmopolis, this was a center of trade, scientific research, higher education, and religious speculation. Ancient Egyptian spiritual teachings mingled with the ideas of Greek philosophy to produce influential new syntheses like the Hermetic writings. These writings, written in Greek, were produced by spiritual communities in the neighborhood of Alexandria. They were attributed to thrice great Hermes, a mythical Egyptian sage and revealer of hidden knowledge. Like other Alexandrian writings, they tended to focus on the Logos, the structure of the cosmos, and humanity's relation to that cosmic pattern. Humanity was pictured as the microcosm, life and mind, the world order in miniature, with an intimate bond to the larger universe. Life and mind were revealed as universal principles. It wasn't limited to one individual or even locked away in human nature itself, but it was inherent aspects of existence itself. The universe was described as the very image of divine beauty and harmony, a hierarchical pattern in which all levels of creation were united in one great chain of being. In the words of one hermetic writing, this great body of the world is a soul, full of intellect and of God, who fills it within and without and vivifies the all. Another exhorted the reader to contemplate the beautiful arrangement of the world and see that it is alive and that all matters is full of life. It was against this remarkable cultural and intellectual backdrop of Alexandria that Plotinus from 205 to 270 AD emerged, the last truly great philosopher of the ancient world. He's often portrayed as the founder of Neoplatonism. Plotinus drew on his own personal insight and experience in addition to the teachings of Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics. Yet while his ideas certainly resemble those of the Hermetic writings, they were presented as philosophical arguments, sometimes deeply poetic, but not as revelation discourses. Plotinus was an Egyptian by birth and he studied for some years with Ammonius Sacchus, a mysterious figure in Alexandria about whom little is known. After joining an ill-fated army expedition to the east on which he had hoped to learn the wisdom of the Persians, Plotinus ended up in Rome, and here he lectured and on the side acted as a guardian for orphan children. His school consisted of a small circle of individuals who would come to hear him speak and respond to questions. Most of his writings were composed in response to issues and questions that came up in the school's discussions. 
Now, Plotinus's importance in our story is that he offers the most detailed account of the world's soul and its place in the cosmic structure to be found in any ancient philosopher. He was one of the greatest writers in the Platonic tradition on beauty and contemplation, and he was also very careful to point out the inadequacy of human language when it came to discussing the deepest nature of reality. So while forced to use poetic images and metaphors taken from the world of time and space, Plotinus frequently warned that the metaphors are not exact, but only meant to point the mind in a certain direction. For Plotinus, all reality was essentially spiritual in nature. The source of the universe was unlimited, ineffable, and of infinite power. He gave the source a variety of names, even though they were all inadequate. The purpose of giving it a name was not to define the source of creation, but only to point toward its nature. His most common name for the unlimited source was the One which suggests its simple, unified nature. Everything that exists is something definite and particular. But this cannot be said of the One, which is unlimited. So, in this sense, the One lies even beyond being or existence itself. It is literally no thing. Yet the infinite source from which all reality emerges. Because it is perfect, unlimited, and a source of infinite power, the one overflows like a fountain. Since its own perfection cannot be contained, it spontaneously gives forth from itself in a movement of generosity in the same way that the sun spontaneously gives forth rays of light. As it overflows, it gives birth to nous, or mind, which is the first and most essential level of reality. In thinking of nous, we must not envision it in human terms. Rather, nous is the universal principle of mind or intelligence out of which our own minds and the entire cosmic pattern emerges. The nous is a perfect harmony in which every part is related to every other part. It is the Logos, the cosmic blueprint of all reality. But, unlike the Stoic Logos, the Nous is entirely non-material. Because it exists beyond time and place, the Nous is not limited but present everywhere. As Plotinus pointed out, mind is not something in us, but we are in mind. The very fact that you can understand these words is due to the common matrix of intelligence in which we all are rooted. Everywhere in nature we see the same sorts of repeating patterns from galaxies to flowers, and these patterns of order and intelligence are rooted in the mouse. If modern scientists speak of the laws of nature which shape the fabric of everything, Plotinus would see those laws as a form of intelligence and situate that intelligence in the nous. Like the one, the nous is perfect. It continues to overflow and emanate outward, giving birth to the world soul, 
the soul of the cosmos. The nous is a harmonically differentiated image of the one, and the world soul is a further differentiated image of the nous. Like mind, the cosmic soul is entirely immaterial. There is a continuity between mind and soul, and no firm dividing line can be drawn between them. Soul is life, and life is always informed by intelligence. Finally, in the same way that intelligence gives birth to soul, or life, soul gives birth to nature. It is the world's soul that brings the space-time cosmos into being and animates the world. In this way, the entire universe is a living organism, and all levels of being are related as links in an unbroken chain. Nature is an image of soul, soul is an image of mind, and mind is an image of the One. Plotinus described things in another way based on the idea of increasing differentiation. The one is a perfect unity. The nous is a one-many. The world's soul is a one-and-many. And nature appears to be made up of many things, but is in reality a coherent organism. As Emerson wrote in The Spirit of Plotinus, the problem of restoring the world's original and eternal beauty is solved by the redemption of the soul. The ruin or the blank that we see when we look at nature is in our own eye. The axis of vision is not coincident with the axis of things, and so they appear not transparent but opaque. The reason why the world lacks unity and lies broken and in heaps is because man is disunited with himself. For Plotinus, the central task of philosophy was remembering our essential nature and awakening to another way of seeing which everyone has but few use. Should our vision be purified, we would see the world as it is not as a collection of things lying broken and in heaps, but as a radiant image of divine beauty and intelligence in which every part is related to every other part. We would see the universe itself as the living image of intelligence and soul, as one closely knit organism in which we are joined in the cosmic fellowship. But, as Plotinus pointed out, such a seeing involves a transformation of vision. No eye ever saw the sun without becoming sun-like, nor can a soul see beauty without becoming beautiful. You must become first of all godlike and all beautiful if you intend to see God and beauty. For Plotinus, the world was a thought a pattern of intelligence at its most essential level. The nous is a thought that thinks itself. Thinker, thought, and object of thought are one. Or as some astronomers now like to say, when we think and wonder about the stars that have given us birth, the stars themselves are thinking through us. Because the cosmos springs from the closely knit unity of the nows. 
The universe is a single living being which encompasses all the living beings that are within it. It has a soul, one soul, which extends to all its members in the degree of participant membership held by each. Because of this, the cosmos is a one-all, a sympathetic total which stands as one living being, as in a single animal with many organs, there is a harmonious coordination of all the parts because a single reason principle is at work. Ultimately, the entire universe is holy and there is nothing without which is without a share of soul. As members of the Cosmic Fellowship, our individual souls are rooted in the world soul in the same way that our individual minds are rooted in the nows. But that does not make us the insignificant parts of a greater and more important whole, a whole that overshadows us. Since the whole is present in the part, there is nothing to prevent a part from also being the whole. Plotinus described the world soul not as our mother, but as our elder sister. Because the world soul is older than us and shapes the divine beauty of the cosmic pattern, she deserves our respect and reverence. But if we clarify our vision and discover our true nature, we become her equal and collaborator. By realizing our true identity, we become one with the fundamental power that orders the universe and brings the world to creative fruition. 